Meet Your Maker makes professional-grade grinders, vacuum sealers, sausage stuffers, dehydrators, and just about everything else to turn your garage, deer camp, or kitchen into a meat processing haven. Meat only sells their processing tools direct to consumer, cutting out the retailer markup guaranteeing you the best price. Meat also has the only lifetime warranty in the industry, and Meat ships your tools direct to you for free. Visit MeetYourMaker.com and use code WAYPOINT for an exclusive discount. And get ready to deer IY this fall. Hunters, welcome back to another Flush and Dustin podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Hunt Ready. Hunt Ready makes quality upland vests, all sourced here in the US of A for all of our pursuits. Check out Hunt Ready and get after them. So tonight we have Dominic Bachman on out from Oregon. Uh, so we're excited to have him here. He's had a kennel since uh, for wire hairs since the 1990s. Is that correct? Yeah, we dad and I started in 1996. Nice. And uh, he is also a bird biologist. So super excited to have him on. Talk about those Western birds that all of us love chasing. Uh, so Dom, could you give your, uh, go ahead and give yourself an introduction. Sure. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I've been involved in the bird and bird dog world my whole life. My dad was also a, a waterfowl bird biologist and I went to school for it, went to more school for it, got a, a graduate degree in studying, um, geese actually. And then, uh, the whole time we've been involved in, uh, these German wire hairs and, I've been involved in NAVDA and AKC hunt tests and field trials and all the things. And I think my real biggest passion has been just a diversity of bird hunting, waterfowl, um, upland birds, all the upland species, the rare species. And with my, my latest dream scheme over the last few years has been just an interest in going to places where I can get four or six species in one hunt like that's my that's my dream stuff that's what gets me excited yeah where do you uh so a lot of people that i've been talked to say like montana area is a super good area to find those multiple species of birds um i guess i've never been out there have you ever hunted montana yeah almost every year my dad had a cabin in eastern montana for a long time and uh I usually start my season out there September 1st. This year nice. we were out around that. It's uh, my birthday is uh, September 3rd. And I've always been lucky enough to have some pretty fun uh, grouse hunts or upland hunts or youth waterfowl hunts on my birthday. And so uh, it was pretty good. Th- this year I did, I had my best ever sort of multi hunt where in, in one sort of walk it was really a couple of walks because we swapped out dogs but from one parking area we shot a limit of sage grouse a limit of shark tails and a limit of huns which um i'd never actually done before from one spot so i was pretty stoked (laughs) that is impressive that is super impressive do you know what the i don't know what the limits are out there do you remember what they are per bird yeah you can shoot eight huns and two sage grouse and four shark tails so Wow. That's impressive. So let's talk about the bird biology for a minute. What, first off, what's the college like that you have to go through? And then what does your now 
day-to-day look like as a bird biologist? Yeah. Um, I'd like to say one quick thing, like a little caveat. So yeah. everything is my own opinion and not the opinion of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, not the opinion of the North American Versatile Hunting Dog Association, um, the two organizations. I do a bunch with this is just my own personal opinion on this podcast um uh yeah so to be a wildlife biologist bird biologist generally you need an undergraduate degree in some sort of a natural resource type range field and almost always a master's degree at a minimum if not a PhD um in some sort of wildlife ecology sort of background sort of thing and it, it was a really fun like I enjoyed uh a lot of my college courses were things that, you know, wildlife diseases and things that are just, you know, I think the general layperson is super interested in wildlife management and habitat management and uh, agricultural systems. And, you know, knowing I took a lot of range classes and there's not that many plants when you live out West in the arid environments. And so if you know 200 plants, you can look like a superhero expert botanist because there's only about 300, you know, in the desert. And so uh, it's, it's really fun. I think it's fun knowing those things. And I really nerded out as a student, there was actually uh, this thing called the, the wildlife quiz bowl, which is kind of like this uh, dorky um, jeopardy type game with buzzers where random wildlife facts, like, you know, how many bird species are there in the world or what is the scientific name of a, of a orca whale or whatever. And uh, I, I got really into that when I was in undergrad of just knowing every sort of nerdy fact that you can know. So, um, and the jobs could be a lot of things. Now the world has kind of changed with a lot of options with small nonprofits you can work for. I work currently work for the federal government at the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge as a wildlife biologist, mostly working on wetlands. But I have in my career, I was a, I worked for the National Wild Turkey Federation as a turkey biologist. I worked for the High Desert Partnership, a very small um, organization, nonprofit as a wetland biologist. And then I also worked for the federal government for three different refuges. I've been all over from Utah to Alaska, California, Oregon, Washington. I worked for the Natural Resource Conservation Service in Washington as their statewide biologist. And that organization is in charge of things like CRP that you probably talk about on a lot of your podcasts, like how they create these great grass areas that have improved bird habitat and worked on this other WRP program, the Wetland Reserve Program in Washington, all kinds of cool wetlands and duck clubs and um, nonprofits that are protecting wetlands just for wildlife. So it's it's been kind of a fun, different sort of career. I've bounced around a fair amount because I like seeing different places. Yeah, it sounds like you've been kind of all over. So now uh, with being based out in Oregon, uh, working with uh, wetland areas, what is your kind of I don't know if you'd say day-to-day or your uh, what you guys strive for mainly yeah I have one massive project that I'm working on which is the the Mount here lake system has gone from uh, a functioning clearwater wetland with hundreds and hundreds of thousands of ducks using it to um, some invade an invasive species the common carp the same carp that you probably know yeah. in the west uh, has invaded and turned everything into a giant chocolate milk. So really carp, 
carp killing is my main part of my job is figuring out these weaknesses with carp and how we can at least manipulate them. I don't think, I don't truly believe that I can completely remove them from the system. They're just, they're really brilliant at what they do. And uh, they have, you know, anywhere from two to 5 million eggs inside of some of the females we can in. They're pretty hard, hard creature to beat, but um, we're doing some really fun stuff using uh, these underwater electric fences. I have these radio telemetry units on a bunch of carp right now. We're tracking them. Um, we've tried commercial fisheries. We've tried, we've got a whole bunch of these uh, pretty cool traps that are set up for them and just kind of, I study them, study their movements and try to figure yeah. them out. And right now we're in an unbelievable mega drought. And so a lot of them are dying on their own and the lake is drying up. And so last year, if we watched, you know, we had to dig through 10,000 dead carp to go get our little telemetry units back um, to next year in a, in a giant, massive low spot in the lake that dried up. So some pretty neat stuff. And we've used some chemicals, this thing called rotenone, which kills fish. And uh, we got to rotenone an area and remove fish from from a pretty cool fisheries near near where I live um, off the refuge to try to try to reduce the number of places that carp can come from. So, man, that's crazy. Did uh, how long, if you re- recall, did it take for the carp to basically evade it to where it became a nice clear water, or where it was a nice clear water to where it became muddy? Is it a pretty quick process for them? You know, take. Yeah, that's an interesting answer. That's a great, uh, great question. Um, so the carp really were brought in, I believe, by um, railroad workers for food as the railroad was coming through. Um, some uh, people put carp in the river system, in the Sylvie's River system, in order to go back and catch them later for food. Um, so really is well established by like 1950s and um the system was still pretty functional through 50s and 60s and the refuge managers, this refuge is old, uh, put in by Teddy Roosevelt. So in the early 1900s, um, it's created, um, but uh, uh, they were battling carp. They still had clear water. They still had um, some carp. And the, what happens when you don't have clear water, you probably know this, but is if, you know, this is from like basic science is that if sunlight can't get there, a plant can't grow. And all of these things, for example, sago pondweed is a really important pondweed to uh, waterfowl. Everything likes to eat it. Diving ducks, puddle ducks, uh, grazing ducks. And so if there's no sunlight can get to the bottom, none of that can grow. And so in this case, um, it was still clear water. They were The refuge was doing these row mountain treatments in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and having some pretty decent control over them. And you would get a couple years where you would get a big bounce back and duck numbers would go way back up. But then this kind of crazy, I don't even know, a thousand year event happened in the 1980s. And I was lucky enough to kind of be part of this. My dad was, like I said, a wildlife management guy and I lived on the Great Salt Lake in Utah and what happened in 82, 83, 83, 84, and 85, 86 was this mega flood, like high water, three years in a row. The Great Salt Lake came way up the house I was living in, which was the Ogden Bay Waterfowl Management Area, had like a little levee around it to protect it from the salt water coming up. And we're a similar system here where the end of a closed basin and um 
there's one more basin beyond Malheur that is actually a saline lake or hyposaline lake, but Malheur is still a freshwater system, but it's at the end of the system. So it, it jumped from like something like an average of 40,000 acres to well over 100,000 acres. And uh, um, what happened is the deepest part of it, uh, all the vegetation, like the bulrush, the cattail, the tulies, as they call them out west, um, all were overtopped by the water. And um, so it killed them. And then the carp really were able to take over, as well as a couple other things. It really lets the, this thing called wind fetch. So as the wind is moving back and forth, it really stirs up the mud that the carp have already stirred up. And ice is allowed to move around. If you think of this thing that this goal of many wetlands is kind of what's called a hemi marsh. So as you're walking out there, there's a patch of tulies and then there's open water and then there's a patch of tulies. That's how this was. And now there's nothing in the middle. And without that hemi marsh, these big chunks of ice go back and forth and it really cuts out anything that tries to grow out there, um, emergent vegetation. And so, so the, the long answer is it, it took a while and a bunch of different events to turn this lake into something that is really not many birds use it. Now, when the water's really low and it's this little mud flat, like right now there's probably 60,000, 150,000 snow, snow and Roskies sitting out oh, there wow. and quite a few, but there isn't great food resources for a lot of the waterfowl out there. Um, the carp are eating one thing. They're basically eating these little teeny tiny larvae of, of a midge, which is basically like a mosquito that doesn't bite. And these little worms live in the mud. And that, that is what the carp are actually living off of. Interesting. Huh. I would have never known any of that. Did, uh, have you heard, you're speaking of snow geese sitting on it. Um, I've just been seeing a little bit on Instagram. And I don't know if it's uh, in the West part of it, but I know it is over here in Iowa and kind of uh, that flyway that they've had uh, an avion bird type flu going through snow geese have you heard anything of that out where you're at i i i actually just saw that i wasn't sure if it was related to um uh exactly what you're talking about because there's a lot of things snow geese typically do have this avian cholera in them which is a winter time disease and they tend to pass that to other birds i've been involved in tons of times with that and another summertime disease called botulism where you have to pile up these dead birds and burn them and pick them up out of the marsh and it's pretty gross maggots and the whole deal but um it could be cholera there's i just saw there was something I just saw real briefly that in north dakota they were yeah. they were trying to cut down the poultry trade and maybe even cut off a bunch of hunt tests and field trials yep. and no birds period and uh that's a big stressor for me and for everyone who runs dogs is, you know, that happened in California a couple of years ago with this Newcastle disease and they shut down. You, you had to get rid of all your pigeons and chuckers and everything. Oh, wow. Did not know that. Yeah. The, what I've seen is it the, basically the bird is like, it can't control its head at all. And it's just kind of like, just all over the place and people are finding them a lot of guys will leave their snow decoy spreads out for you know however long and they're walking out there in the mornings and just finding dead snow geese laying in there and um so i didn't know if you knew anything yeah. about that or not or a couple of things generally cholera is is kind of considered a really quick disease so they die pretty fast. Like you could be walking along and kick up a bunch of coots and one literally just rolls over and dies. Oh. Um, 
Whereas this other one, botulism in the summertime is a slower disease and is known for having some of that where this limber neck and the duck is out completely out of control. There's another one, duck virus enteritis, that it could be, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I haven't heard specifically about what's going on in the Midwest. Yeah. I, honestly, I have, I have junk internet and cell service, so I just try to stay to my own world. Hey, there's nothing wrong with that either. Sometimes the less internet, the better. Uh, so what's been, what's been one of your favorite projects? Uh, obviously this project that you've been talking about is super cool to me. Uh, but what's been one of your favorite projects since you've been, um, a bird biologist that you've been able to do? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll talk about a couple of things, but I think, you know, it's really cool getting your hands on different birds. I've banded a ton of different waterfowl species and sage grouse, sandhill cranes. You know, I, I used to be able to incorporate my love of dogs and my bird biology, where one of the refuges I worked at, I was basically a, a crane biologist. And I was we were doing a project where we were keeping track of the young cranes, which are called colts. And they're actually really smart and really hard to catch after they're just a few days old. And I was able to use my, my wire hairs to go out and find them and point them. And then we would capture them and ban them. And uh, it was, that was, that was really cool. Like being able to incorporate that. I've got to go out and look for different uh, grouse, sage grouse lex and sharp tail nests and things using dogs. And so combining my two loves and getting paid to do such is. Yeah, that's awesome. Situation. So I'll also say I've got to go to just some of the coolest places I've been to. I believe I've been to all the refuges in the West, except for a couple in Alaska. And so that's been a good experience getting to just see cool places. And honestly, the places that I've been in Alaska, Alaska is like just its own world. And places that I've been to are really remote, Cold Bay and the the Yukon Kuskokwim Delta and uh, up in Barrow, up at the very top of Alaska and just, just, different worlds to to get to take a peek in and I never fit in because of the dog situation to really live in Alaska for forever you really difficult to be off the grid system and be a dog breeder yeah for sure which leads us into our next topic so you uh, have been in the dog breeding and kennel industry since you said 1996 I believe is that correct yeah yeah you know Growing up, my dad was a, always a dog guy. He field trialed labs and had setters and was, he, he really got into waterfowl hunting when he was in his 30s and 40s. And we managed this place called Ogden Bay Waterfowl Management Area, which is at the time anyways, it had a pretty decent population of pheasants, uh, quail and snipe and some great waterfowl hunting, swans, ducks, geese. And so we were just looking for a dog that did everything. And we had chest peaks and labs, which were fantastic dogs growing up. And I remember about 1990, we saw our first wire hair that, that we'd ever seen hunting. And we were at, actually at a pheasant preserve. And it was this small little female that was just, just incredible. We had, I think my dad had won uh, a pheasant hunt and it said guided. And then we get there and the guy's like, well, you didn't bring a dog. And we didn't know. So we didn't bring our dogs because we didn't think we were supposed to. And so this guy took us out with this wire hair and we were just both just transfixed on that breed and getting into it. And uh, dad got our first wire, wire hair just a, a few years later um, in 1992. And then it, 
things <laughs> things went crazy from there. We have we have a lot of dogs now, tons of cone dogs all across the nation, and I, I really love the breed. And I love all dogs. I mean, I'm a I'm a Navda judge. I love watching all the different versatile dogs do do what they're supposed to do. I've loved watching hound dogs and sheep dogs. You know, do what they're supposed to do. But these dogs just have a special place in my heart and um, have been have just been a really fun experience being part of kind of a a niche breed yeah for sure did uh well nick nice of you to join us tonight sorry guys sorry guys side swim lessons and stuff my daughter's is uh um sorry be late um no worries dom how's it going it's uh it's going really great um we've been chatting up about bird biology and bird dogs basically what i do all day every day is try to talk about birds or bird dogs so pretty normal day. like we have a group that that does the same yeah. thing pretty much that we talk to yeah uh, so continue sorry i'm sorry i missed the first part of that <clears throat> what dog do you have dom sorry have you ever wanted to process your own wild game from start to finish meet your maker has you covered meat makes professional grade grinders vacuum sealers sausage stuffers dehydrators and just about everything else to turn your garage deer camp or kitchen into a meat processing haven meat only sells their processing tools direct to consumer cutting out the retailer markup guaranteeing you the best price meat also has the only lifetime warranty in the industry and Meat ships your tools direct to you for free. Visit MeetYourMaker.com and use code WAYPOINT for an exclusive discount. And get ready to deer IY this fall. Uh, I, I Right now I run German. Last year I got my first non-wire hair since I was in my teens. I had a Chesapeake, but uh, we, we do have, we did get a Cocker Spaniel um, to use as part of our uh, hunting guiding regime. You know, it's very popular nice. right now to do the flusher pointer thing and yep. so i uh um i have enjoyed that we got it we it didn't quite make the team i'd like to start breeding cockers and that one was fantastic little dog but didn't quite make the team and we just got another one so we've got another cocker and if i had space i would always have more dogs but i i try to take on i try to buy one wire another breeder and keep two to three every year so it's it's a process. Holy cow. How many, how many dogs are you up to? You know, I don't even, I don't even know how to answer that question anymore. <laughs> um, uh, I, I co-own a bunch of dogs and right now I have some dogs that at like that are off on the field trial circuit and I have, um, some dogs that are off getting bred. And I, I also, because I live uh, on a big remote ranch in the middle of nowhere and kind of checker country, I, I have to ship a lot of my dogs to families somewhere to, to get kind of that family urban life. If they work out for me, I want them to be like a smooth transition. To, yep. And I, I just want dogs that can handle all kinds of things. And that's one thing that I can, offer. I can offer every kind of bird and running and every kind of dog training gizmo ever invented. But uh, I can't offer sort of family life and urban life. Where, uh, where did you get your cocker from? Just curious. Uh, I got it from Andrea Mahorny, uh, and she's up in Nez Pierce, Idaho, and she she has some really nice stuff. She's she's have you, been. Have you ever heard of Raglan Gun Dogs of Illinois? I, of course, and uh, yeah, yeah I, 
I follow, I, I want to get more into Cockers and I want to learn more about it. Um, but uh, I, I follow all of the Cocker breeding stuff. <clears throat> okay. and I'm the kind of guy that likes to research stuff a lot. So nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Well, it makes sense being a bird biologist and you had to get your master's and PhD and stuff. So it's, that kind of fits right in with you. Uh, so what got you into NAVDA testing and, and being a judge then? Yeah, sure. Um, the NAVDA thing is intriguing to me. Um, I, uh, I tested my first dog in the early 1990s. Um, I, when I was 13, I started working for a guy who's actually still amazingly enough training dogs at Miller Kennels in Plain City, Utah, a guy named Roger Miller. And I just started the way I think most good dog trainers start by picking up poop for years. <laughs> and uh, so I started that way and I pull and we started doing some NAVDA tests. My dad was one of the founding members of the Utah NAVDA chapter, which is the Wasatch chapter of NAVDA, which is a really good chapter. They tend to have really good training trainers, really good training and, and really high scores. When I go to judge there, their utility scores are top notch. There's some people who take it pretty seriously. Um, and I've always wanted to be a judge. As I was saying earlier, I've lived all over the place and traveled. And honestly, becoming a NAVDA judge is very expensive and time consuming and much more difficult out West than um, in the Midwest or in the East. I mean, chapters can be really far apart and uh, can be really hard. You've got to you've got to judge a lot of dogs and stuff. And so when I, I got a couple of raises and moved up in the job world and was able to have enough time off to be able to feel comfortable doing it. I wanted to do it decades ago, but uh, I started doing it and the apprentice program is tough. Like they, they actually, I don't know if you guys are familiar with NAVDA all that much, but you know, they judge on a scoring system, but they also judge these apprentice judges on a scoring system. And at the end of the day, at, at every NAVDA event you've been to, or that you go to, they read the scores of the dog. Well, they also read at in, in private, thankfully, they go over your scores for the day of like how you did, how you worked with the dog, how you read the people, how you knew the rules. And they basically quiz you from starting about 6am to 6pm for three days straight. And it's it was, it was like going back in grad school and having a bunch of PhDs asking me questions all the time. It was, it was, it was uh, some long weekends, but I really like it because I do think that their judges really know their stuff and they, they really care. But I, I did it as a way to extend sort of how I meet people that are interested in the same things as me. And I love the opportunity, especially as a judge, where you can kind of just, you can help people especially in the natural ability tests and lots of times people within three states of me they they like my style and then they ask if they can come and train at our place and we make lifelong friends and go on hunting trips and talk about birds and bird dogs and mostly I remember the dogs if you if I ever judge you and you start telling me who you are I usually stop you and say well tell me more about the dog I'll probably remember that before I remember you what uh how often do you judge how frequently um, yeah, so I've been trying to keep it at three to four weekends a year total. I mean, I have a day job and a busy dog breeding business, as well as some other side shows. And so I try not, I try to, this is going to be my, my worst, dumbest year ever, because I think I'm doing five this year, but I just keep getting, Ooh. 
there's a lot of judges who are aging out and retiring and there's NAVDA as an organization has been growing exponentially over the last few years. And so we've heard a lot about it recently. If I feel like Um, a lot of organizations, like I still, I really want to get into more horseback field trial stuff, but that's like a, you have to be in it to get into that. Like financially, it takes a lot to go to a NAVDA test and go basically get like free sort of training advice and free training days and access to birds and other people that hunt and do outdoorsy things in your area. It's, it can't be beat. But since there's so few judges right now, and especially out West, they're desperate for, for judging. And um, I got invited to just cool places and I'm, I'm actually headed back here in a couple of weeks. Um, this is bragging in a way, but I'm pretty excited because I, I was able to scam. I'm headed back to Maryland to judge for NAVDA, but I've been, I was supposed to get my 50th state visiting my 50th state um, a couple of years ago, but this silly little thing called COVID came up and it's made traveling difficult. And yes, so it is. I'm, I scammed my way into getting invited to judge in Maryland. And my last state um, is uh, Rhode Island. And I'm going to go, my significant other and I are going to get to go to Rhode Island, which is my 50th state, which I, I grew up in Utah, kind of a repressed world. And I made a goal when I was 20 and moved to California that I was going to drink a beer in all 50 states before I was 40. And I, I dang near made it. So, but I'm about ready to drink my beer in Rhode Island here in two weeks. And I'm really excited. That's impressive. It's nice. uh, a good goal to have. Yeah. Yeah. I'll put that I on my I put that on my books. By a couple of years, but I, I'm certainly certainly tried my best. But um yeah, this year I'm also going to Wyoming, which is a state that's super intrigues me. I want to live in Wyoming someday. And then I'll be judging also in Alaska and <laughs> and Arizona. So getting around. I'd like to go, go to Arizona. we're going to we're going to Wyoming this year ourselves. Maybe Tyler said this earlier. No, he didn't. For a big game oh. hunt, or hunt? Uh, sage grouse. Hmm. That's the state that has the most sage grouse for sure. Yeah. So we're going there. We got invited uh, by some some buddies we kind of met through podcasting and whatnot. So we're heading out there uh, September sixteenth. We leave and going out and gonna give it a gonna give it a try. I suppose. There, you know, they want to. I. I worked for this program called the SGI Sage Grouse Initiative for a while when I was in Washington and uh, they've just, they've always intrigued me. I I mean, I remember the exact moment that I shot my first one in 1992 and about that same week in September. um, And uh, it was pouring down rain. I was wearing a rubber rain jacket because that's what we had in those days. And I was sweating so much. I was wearing, I still had glasses then I was sweating so much. And I was walking along and the dog was on point and I, I just, I, we'd seen a couple of sharp tails, but I knew there was, there was going to be sage grouse and this big old boomer gets up off our dog's point And I, I shot literally, you could not see out my glasses. It was just straight shooting a giant blob. And when that thing went down, I was so excited. I actually set my gun down and ran out there to grab it. I was there. They've, they've been a bird that has always intrigued me. A lot of times when you go sage grouse hunting, most likely where you go, it's the only bird that's out there. Like they, there's not like a lot of combo hunting with sage grouse just live in this unique environment. Because there's a, what is it? A, um, blue grouse up in the mountains, a little higher if you go there. Yeah. There, there's a yeah. few places. Um, one in Idaho that the dad and I did it now, mostly 
the seasons don't overlap perfectly, but there was a place in, in Southern Idaho where at one point you could in the same walk shoot a rough grouse, a blue grouse, uh, or it would be technically a dusky grouse. <clears throat> now, um, a, a sharp grouse, a sharp tailed grouse and a sage grouse all in the same area. And uh, pretty cool for that. Um, that's yeah. what I was telling I was telling Tyler earlier, that's like one of my favorite things is seeking out these locations that you could go after multi-species in a day. Um, I did a very special hunt that I'd planned for years to try to get four grouse species in one day. We never did pull it off. It was It's hard to do, but we did it within the hunt, just not within yep. the day. Let me um, ask we, you this, Dom. What what boots are you wearing along these these uh, treks here? Because that's one thing that we're always trying to figure out what to buy for our next boot. Uh, gosh, I I'm I'm bad at this. I will tell you, I did spend over a thousand dollars on boots this year because I haven't bought boots in five years. Hopefully, that's I'm, more than one pair. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it, it's actually four that that I ended up buying, including new rubbers and new everything. I've been financially i'm the kind of person that was just raised that way to use shoe goo and squeeze things out squeeze the light but i use some boots i have some danner pronghorns that are like 13 years old that everyone's like oh those don't last me a season and i'm like i hunt harder than anyone i know and they last me but i do i do try to take care of my stuff but i really like these i believe it's these whites Hawaii is kind of a funny whites is like a known as like a forestry brand um, but they do make these hunting boots now. And I, I love those. Um, I have, a, I have an issue with my feet in that one, my right foot is much wider than my left foot is a normal size. It's boots. like my wife. She has, she has one foot longer than the other. Oh, it's such a struggle. <laughs> or bigger just, than the other, whatever you want to say. <laughs> one just, foot's a, one foot's a size eight and one's size five or something like that. <laughs> yeah. I'm too two boots and i absolutely so the right boot always tears out when the left boot has nothing wrong with it still so man i bet these i bet these are super good i think i'm on the white's boots handmade since 1853 in spokane washington yeah those are some super good boots yeah so i've i've been been happy with that a lot of the fire guys really believe in white's boots and they they spend a lot of time trekking but i've actually learned i used to wear my nice boots to testing and trialing and uh for judging because in, in a judging weekend you'll often miles in three days if you're doing a bunch of natural ability oh, tests wow. um and now i just wear like because it's really not that hardcore you're always in like a nice field and you're never going in so I realized I just like nice shoes now. Yeah, for sure. Do you, uh, speaking of Nando, do you have one of the tests that you enjoy judging the most? Yeah, that's a, that's a hard question to answer. I've judged um, the invitational. I'm not actually qualified to judge that, but I've, I've judged there's three, three places. I have judged the natural ability, the utility preparatory test, utility tests, and the utility is a really finished dog, and it does everything that I think any legitimate bird hunter would want to do. All the duck hunting stuff, all the bird hunting stuff. The only thing it's not required to do is backing. There's just not backing in that particular test. Um, but uh, 
I like watching that. And I'll tell you, I don't really care about the score. What I like watching is when a dog hasn't had too much pressure, a a dog that gets a really high score, but has had so much pressure on it, its tail's kind of between its legs and it just doesn't have a lot of style and it's doing it because it has to versus these dogs, especially a lot of times it's, I, I don't know if this is biased, but a lot of times it's women that are running these dogs that the dog just is so happy and so, you know, obviously hasn't been overpressured and they're just so fun to watch them do their job. Like with their, they're just so happy bringing a bird in. And that's, that's what I, I love seeing. I love seeing dogs that are happy doing what they're supposed to do, just crushing through the brush and not doing it because they've been trained by a professional trainer to do it. What, uh, what does it require for a judge to be on the, an inv- you said invitational that you're not yeah, I, I've never actually ran a dog in the Invitational. I, I'm qualified to this year. I decided not to, even though it's in New Mexico, because this other thing that I'm really into is the German wire hair pointer field trial stuff. And the Nationals is right at the same time. But um, so you would have to run a dog and pass a dog in it. And you'd have to be a senior judge, which I'm probably only a year or two away from being eligible as a senior judge. Um, and I certainly will run in the Invitational someday. But it's in September. And that to me, to like us Westerners is bird season. I mean, it's, I start where I live. I start September one in Montana and I end somewhere in Northern California or Southern Oregon on March 10th when our spec and snow goose season ends. So it's a, it's a long go. And we don't How get many days. Do you think you actually get out on that time? Are you hunting every, I'm afraid you hunting almost that, every day? Uh, I'm afraid that some of my, my supervisors may be listening to this, so I'm afraid to give you an actual answer. <laughs> Let's just say, as I can, this, this last year, the last couple of years, I've been able to spend a month or more in Arizona. And because of COVID and other things, I'm able to telework. And then I, I'm down there hunting three species of quail, you know, three or four days a week at least. And where I was living down there, I can, I can be on a quail covey in 10 minutes from the house. So you could do a couple conference calls, take a two hour lunch break, go hunting, come back and work for five or six hours on a grant or something and get a full day's work in and still sneak in a hunt. And that's something that's been important to me my whole life. All the places that I've lived have had hunting 15 minutes from my house. That's like the maximum I'll do. Yeah, I like the way you think. I, yeah, I, that's great. I telework now, working from home, and that has definitely been one of the benefits of that is being able to squeeze in an afternoon hunt or something, just get up a little earlier, log in a little earlier, and leave a little earlier. That's been super nice. Absolutely. Yeah, I was going to tell you, like, this thing that I've just been getting into in the last, since 2019, is, like, these horseback field trials. And I'll tell you, I'm not a horse guy. Like, I worked on kind of a dude ranch shoveling horse poop and knew a little bit about horses when I was young. And then I just, I'm like, now people who ride horses have broken hips and broken necks and it's not my thing, but I just, I've gotten into this and I really have the bug now. I want to get a horse and I want to do it. And it's, I used to always think how dumb, like I wouldn't, who would want a dog that only runs off horseback, but it's not really like that. These dogs are smart and they figure out how to run big and how to run, you know, if you're, forest grouse hunting they're there within 70 80 yards of you and they're 500 yards out when you're on the horseback but it's 
it's been really fun. I'm super getting into it. We're headed to, I'm headed to a horseback trial this weekend. And uh, the people who do that, like it's next level. These aren't just people who like, oh, I got a dog and I do this. They're people that are kind of like my people, you know, that are there. They all have 10 or 12 dogs. They all have every kind of dog training gizmo. They all hunt their butts off, you know. How, what, a, what are most people going after for horseback when they're hunting birds off horseback? You know, I, I think there's, it, there's less and less options to truly hunt off horseback because of fences um, make it difficult. But uh, certainly some of the things that you could do off horseback all over in Montana, Montana is not the land of fence and much of, much of Canada you can ride and hunt pheasants, you can hunt sharptails, huns, you could hunt sage grouse, all those things could easily be hunt off horseback, as well as a lot of checker hunting in not too rough of country. It's possible to go in and um, hunt off horseback. But I just like, I like the view because a lot of times I'm, I'm doing what's gun dog stakes. So they're not huge running dogs anyways. There's this thing called all age, which is like English pointers and setters really excel at that are like these big really big running dogs but the gun dog stuff is you know the dog can be within a few hundred yards or 400 yards maybe but you you can see everything that's going on it's just a really great view and um when you go to a navda test like you're running your dog and maybe your wife or your kid or your you know husband comes walking with you but um not the whole gallery can't see a lot of what's going on the judges are the only ones who get this great show in the field trial world, everybody rides every brace if you want to. So you get to see everything. So it's 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 really more of a spectator sport in that way. Yeah, it's uh, crazy. Never taken or like haven't looked into it much. And do they, they shoot off the back of the horse or do they get off the horse and then shoot at the oh. bird? They do get off the horse. I'm sure people have shot off the top of a horse. But uh, um, actually, in most of the field trials, this is going to sound weird to you guys, but they don't actually kill the birds. You get off the horse and you shoot a cap gun. They really care about the beauty of the search and the find and the, the point and how the point looks and how much style the dog has. They do this kind of strange to someone new call the callback so if you're if you're in the ribbons and you're gonna win first second third then they would plant a bird and you would walk up to it your dog would point it and a gunner would shoot the bird um they rarely are able to shoot birds on course anymore because it just it takes a lot of extra people with horses and you gotta have two more guys with guns and all this stuff and so um, it's hard to pull off as that sport has kind of gotten less and less popular um, because of the finances behind it. So a lot of it is actually more about the, not about the killing, like Nastra, you get to shoot your own birds and it's really fun. It's, it's like a little game you can play, but this is more just purely about the dogs and watching the dogs more so. Well, I accidentally muted Nick for some reason. <laughs> no, you probably heard you probably heard my daughters in the background. Um, that's crazy. Uh, I love that they're just taking the beauty of the dog and how it's hunting and just watching it. And they don't even care about the bird because honestly, that's why we hunt. You know, I don't necessarily. If I didn't have a dog, I probably wouldn't hunt. To be honest with you. 
you know, I love going out with them and I love being with them. And it's more about seeing them succeed and watching them do what they love, which makes me love it because they love it. And then if you get a bird, you get a bird. If you don't, you know, you don't. Absolutely. It was one of my co-owners and she was basically telling me that she's like, I mean, if I didn't have my dog for the weekend, I just wouldn't go. And I don't know. I still have the hunting bug in me enough that I'd probably figure it out. And I have to go a lot with other people's dogs, you know, dogs that we've bred or friends that I invite or when you're guiding people and they want to use their dogs. And I just like watching dogs. So it it doesn't really bother me whether it's my dog or somebody else's dog, but uh, it's sure fun when your dog's doing well and doing what it was bred to do and trained to do and those kind of things. It's, it's always a very good feeling. Yeah, for sure. What's been uh, one of your best memories um, in the gun dog world that you can think of whether hunting, whether that's training, whether it's judging, what's been one of your favorite memories? Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, there's a bunch of situations, but the, like, it's always the same thing. It's like when um, all the pieces of a puzzle come together, you've got somebody that, you know, is a new hunter and they've got their new dog and all these things fall together. And sometimes I feel like I'm kind of a puzzle master pulling the strings, making sure that the person is standing in the right spot, making sure the dog knows what to do, using my dogs to maybe even find a covey and then pulling them back and letting them bring their dog in and getting that point or getting that, you know, calling to that duck and, and then, and then having them make that shot and just seeing that, just that, the look in their eyes when things all come together and especially when all the pieces fall together. It's, it's really, really fun. There's nothing like it. Yeah. Um, and I, I do a bunch. I'm, I'm super stoked. I've got this situation. I, I keep adding levels of craziness to my life, but this year, last year, I did a day where we did 10 dogs all at once, all at a NAVDA test, all wire hairs, all dogs that we bred and all the owners from across the country came together. We basically had a big party while we did it and it was so much fun. I'm doing it again this year, but this year I'm doing it with all youth handlers. So all kids, 13 years and younger, which I don't, as far as I know out West, that's never been done at a NAVDA event before. So I'm really that excited. Awesome. That that's incredible. Helping us make that happen. And I think the day before we're going to all meet up, we're all going to camp at the site. We're going to, you know, make, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, but I'm going to do like a mini dog training seminar. We're probably going to take the kids on, show them horseback, like what it's like running, running dogs off horseback, show them all the different scenarios of what's going to happen the next day. So they're not nervous about it as nervous. Obviously they're still going to be nervous. And uh, uh, I'm, I'm super fired up for that. That's happening in June. I, I never, I was never able to have my own children. And so working with kids that get to go to someone else's house at the end of the day. I have no problem. I really like working with kids and new hunters and women hunters that um, I've been working on kind of that world for several years now and really, really enjoy it. Yeah. There's no better way to bring them into it than having a a good mentor. And, you know, you got to keep growing those pooper scoopers to, they got to start at the (laughs) bottom and work their way up. Right. Yeah. 
I, uh, I got a gal right now that she's 13. Her name is Tressa. She's my apprentice. She's been working for me for two summers and, um, she's a local here. It's real remote. She goes to a one room schoolhouse hat only goes to school with her three sisters. So you can imagine that's a different world, but she's, she's been really good last weekend. I just, I was able, I was lucky enough to be able to take her to a Rick Smith dog training seminar and, you know, Delmar Smith and the Smith family is kind of these godfathers of a certain training method anyways. Um, and they allow you to take kids for free. And so I took her and it was so cool watching her like figured out. And then, you know, Rick Smith walking up to her, he's in his mid seventies and just saying, wow, you're really good with this dog. And, you know, just seeing her face light up and see her realize that, I mean, right now I'd like to take on more apprentices because with COVID and we're, you know, you don't know what the best job choice is, but I guarantee you, if you can teach a dog obedience and do dog training, you can do that in any city, anywhere and make money it is a really good skill to have. So I, I can sell it to these kids that it's, it's a good opportunity to, you know, if something happens, you lose your job tomorrow, you can take on dogs and start, start helping do whether it's basic obedience or uh, advanced hunting dog training. So. Yep. That's really good. That's really good. Yeah, isn't uh, that the truth? <laughs> how, uh, so she, has she been your only apprentice so far? Yeah, I've never I've never been crazy enough to take on as many dogs as I did last year. And I'm trying to take on a few less, but I, I own so many and co-own so many and have so many litters going that it it's like a it's it's more than I can handle. What what the real value is is I really love doing these weekend training sessions that are like a one-on-one. Like you got your first, like so let's say German short hair, and you went to a training day with like 20 other people and you learned a little bit but you want to do more and so I live so remote people come and stay at the house we we basically Friday night Saturday morning Saturday night Sunday morning we do these intensive dog training sessions where not only do we work your dog but we you work my dogs too and so you get a feel for like a dog that just started at this a dog that's at your dog's level, an advanced dog, a dog that's been an old pro at this, and you can really see it. I think it's really motivating. And the problem that I have with that is it's really hard to talk to people and plant birds and manage a dog. And you see someone like Rick Smith, he can do it. He can actually, I swear to you, I watched him. um, He can read a dog that's behind him just by reading the faces of what the, what the people in the audience he's looking at. He'd be like, the dog moved a step, didn't it? You know, it, it was really impressive to see that, but so what Tressa is able to help me do is she can get the next dog ready. She can go plant birds. She can run out there and fix something if I forgot to do something and uh, drive the other truck or drive the trailer. And as a 13-year-old, it's probably pretty cool to be able to drive an $80,000 truck and trailer around. So um, uh, she has a good time. And it really helps me spend that one-on-one time with either a puppy buyer of bars or, um, you know, a client that's in for dog training. And I'm not a professional dog trainer. I I'm not an amateur by legal status as far as running dogs, but I just, I do it for fun. I mean, it's fun working with people. I just, I finally realized last couple of years, I have to make a couple of dollars to pay for my other addiction, but yeah, for sure. Do you, uh, what's, uh, for someone that's never ran in Nabda or maybe just getting into the 
versatile dog world, what's one of the biggest tips you would give them if they're looking to get into NAVDA um, and running test or trials? Sure. I think, I think the first tip is probably too late for most people, but it is pick the right breeder, you know, pick someone that is breeding the dog that does the things that you want it to do. And that is someone that you can communicate with. It's a lot like sort of like getting a realtor, you know, I mean, it's, it's someone that influences can influence your life super positively or just be a pain in the butt. And so having a a good breeder that, that does the same sort of hunt tests and field trials as you do, I think can be really nice. And someone that's really invested in their breed and in their breedings, like we are, I mean, they, um, there's a lot of them. There's a lot of great breeders out there, but there's also a lot of not so great breeders. And I think everyone learns pretty much the hard way. Their first dog, they get it from, they, they get the puppy fever. They find out, you know, Joe down the street has a litter of puppies and they get one. And usually the second dog goes a lot better. But um, the advice that I would give is get, is do your homework on like what the test is, like what it's asking. There's this Ames guide that really describes the test. I'm always shocked how people get there and they, they literally have no idea what it is that they're there to do. And there is a free book that tells you that there's some great video resources. Um, your breeder should be able to help you with that. I actually, I give all of my puppy buyers a 16 page document. And that document is not about dog training. It's just about what, what, I think is important about the test and what it, what your day is going to be like. And especially some of the stuff that's really confusing and hard is just like how to get involved in a chapter, how to sign up for a test, how to get the dog registered, how to get, um, become a chapter member, all these things that, um, some chapters are way better technologically with and others not so much, but get involved in the training days. And even if it's not your thing, group training, you can often meet someone and make a connection to birds. You can make a connection to hunting. You can often make a connection to someone who you and that other person can just go and train if the group training thing is, is not your thing. But I, the one thing that I'd like to say to everybody is just go try it. I don't care whether it's NAVDA or AKC or Versatile Honey Dog Federation or Bird Dog Challenger, NASTRA go check it out and go try it. And if you don't like it, there's another game that you will. I mean, there's just so many games out there. Oh, that's, that's great advice. Um, so again, we appreciate you coming on. You've given out tons of information. Love to learn about the biology part of it. Love to learn about your kennel, your goals, and uh, excited to hopefully see you on a horseback someday riding around. Um uh, I'll be yeah, right. I, apologize. I apologize for being late. No worries. But no, this was this was great. Uh definitely, definitely appreciate you coming on and taking an hour out of your night uh yes. to, to talk dogs and biology and all that good stuff. So um again, Thanks we appreciate for, it. So I'll be thinking about you guys mid-September chasing chasing sage grouse. Yeah, for sure. We'll yeah. we'll let you know how we do. Awesome. All right, have a great night. Good night.